Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly funded by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, a General Practitioner, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr Susan Morton about the Growing Up in New Zealand study and what we have learnt so far and how we should be using this knowledge to reduce inequity and optimise care in New Zealand general practices. Susan is a public health physician specialising in life course epidemiology. She is the director and principal investigator for the Growing Up in New Zealand study and works at the University of Auckland. Welcome Susan. Susan, can you tell us a little about the Growing Up in New Zealand study and what it's all about? So Growing Up in New Zealand is a contemporary longitudinal study of children and families. We have enrolled 6,853 children. Uh, we enrolled them via their pregnant mothers, so before birth, and we enrolled uh, partners at the same time. The idea is to follow those children through their journey um, up until young adulthood so that we understand what is shaping their development in the context of modern New Zealand um, and also actually in the context of diverse families and the diverse population of children who are now growing up in New Zealand today. Uh, the study is designed to understand multidisciplinary influences on well-being um, and also designed to actually engage with government agencies directly along the way so that we can provide this evidence about what's actually happening for children and families in their homes and in their everyday environment to policymakers across sectors so that we can influence the way that strategies are designed or policies are enacted to actually make sure that we are doing the best for all of our children. What have you learnt so far about children and their families and the way they engage with primary care, Susan? So the children and the families who are part of growing up in New Zealand, first of all, I think importantly, are very diverse. So one of the things that sets this study apart from other studies internationally, as well as studies that have previously run in New Zealand, for example, is the ethnic diversity of our children. So really importantly, one in four of the children in the cohort will identify as Māori, one in five will identify as Pacific, one in six identify as Asian New Zealand. Um, and we still have around two thirds who identify as New Zealand European. And of course that means that we also have around a half of the children who identify with multiple ethnicities. So they're a very diverse group. And that diverse group of children who so far have been largely identified by their parents because currently the children are just turning eight. Uh, they were born in 2009 and 2010. Uh, that group of children are also living in diverse families. So the family situations that we might have expected our children to be growing up in maybe a generation or two ago can be quite different when we think about that and, and see what's happening for these children today. So for example, one in four of the children are living in an extended family situation. So when we think about what's shaping well-being generally, we need to be aware this is not just mum and dad who are with the child, or even just mum on their own that we think about quite often, but there are quite often other family members around who are very influential in terms of what's happening for these children. So when we think about how these children are doing, particularly in their first thousand days, which we know is incredibly important for shaping their journey, um, we quite often focus on mothers, and it's quite often mothers who will be interacting with the health services as well. They're the ones that are um, obviously going to see their lead maternity carer during pregnancy. They're the ones who are often engaging with their primary health carer, their GP, um, in the postnatal period, as well as potentially around about the time of pregnancy, although less so in New Zealand these days. 
Um, but actually, I think what we need to remember is that as well as mums, there are often dads around, not always, but often, in the majority of cases, and actually one in four of the children have these other aunties, uncles, grandparents, other key family members who are actually going to be critical in deciding what to do with information that is provided, for example, by health carers. Um, and also very influential in deciding what is done for this child and how their development is shaped. So I think that's something that potentially as health professionals um, is a little different than it was previously, where we, we often were thinking more about traditional family type. So because we started engaging with these families in pregnancy, uh, the one thing that we could see is the sort of continuity that occurred for these families in terms of recognising a pregnancy, engaging with a carer in pregnancy, and also postnatally then what happened with re-engaging, if you like, with their primary health carer, often their GP or their GP practice. And that's of course interesting in the New Zealand context because we have a different maternity carer system than, than other places in the world. And one of the things that we did notice firstly is that for around 40% of all of the mums in this study, pregnancy was unplanned. So when pregnancy is unplanned, of course, that doesn't provide the opportunities that we might want to have from a sort of a prevention um, point of view, where we want to mothers to think about their diet, we want them to think about their their drinking, their alcohol intake, we want them to think about some of the other things that they do like smoking or, or potentially other drug taking, physical activity, their BMI, those sorts of things that we know are critically important, as well as for example folic acid and getting that on board at a time that is likely to have the biggest impact on reducing problems in, in early pregnancy. So with 40% of the pregnancies unplanned first of all, I think when we think about that interaction with primary care, there may well be an opportunity that we're potentially missing here, and that because women don't always go to their GPs around that time of pregnancy, whether it's actually planned or unplanned, potentially there's an opportunity here to think about the sort of women of reproductive age generally, to think about is there an opportunity as a primary health carer to be engaging in conversations with them about what might be required if they're thinking about having a family at any time in the future. Not necessarily imminently, they might be teenagers, they might be young women, but eventually they may well be thinking that this is something in their future. So generally as a primary health carer you would have conversations about contraception. You know, so at that point perhaps there's also an opportunity to sort of talk about some of these other things that there might be a missed opportunity otherwise if women are actually not engaging with their GPs throughout pregnancy now, and if they have unplanned pregnancies, and therefore the chance to make these lifestyle changes is not available to them. So that's one thing. I think also what women tell us is that they find it, um, they find it somewhat easy to engage with a lead maternity carer, and that most of them by the end of their pregnancy have engaged with a lead maternity carer. But actually there's quite a differential um, time taken for women to engage and find their carer of choice, I suppose. And for women who are Māori or Pacific or younger or living in higher deprivation areas, it's much more difficult for them to get a carer of their choice. And it takes them longer to engage with a carer. So potentially if we think back to before pregnancy, whether it's planned or unplanned again, you know, understanding that those women in particular have more need than some of the other women who are more able to access services 
is important when you're actually having a one-on-one -on -one consultation with some of those young women and young mums. Um, so I think that can be a problem because that discontinuity between that trusted carer and we do know that our women tell us that they trust their GPs you know they engage with their GPs they find that engagement satisfying in general for themselves as well as for their children later you know so that opportunity for the GP to be engaged in that process even if it's sort of remotely is actually quite important I think then if we think postnatally we also see that that transition back to primary health care is different for different women. So those who are able to access those services, who are readily able to engage with both lead maternity carers as well as their own primary carers, can make that transition quite easily and therefore that allows them to have timely immunisation, it allows timely information about breastfeeding, timely information for themselves about their own health, which is critically important in terms of looking after the children. But I think it's actually also important to remember that what we're seeing from this group of parents is that again for our most vulnerable mums, for the young mums, for the Māori, for the Pacific mums in particular, there's a much higher chance that their ability to engage back with general practice or with their primary health carers is likely to be more delayed. And we see the flow-on effects of that with delayed immunisation and less timely and complete immunisation. And therefore that, that also is associated with more respiratory infection, with more admission to hospital. So we know that there's a group of our population that as yet we're still not engaging with in the way that meets their needs. Some excellent points there, thank you. Susan, you've mentioned breastfeeding. Tell me how many women in New Zealand are breastfeeding and to what sort of age? So when we look at initiation of breastfeeding, when we look at the Growing Up in New Zealand study, as well as when we look at the general health statistics, we actually see a very high rate of initiation of breastfeeding in that very first few days after birth. It's around 97 or 98% of all the mothers will have actually initiated breastfeeding postnatally, so in that immediate postnatal period. But then what we see is a gradual fall off in that rate of breastfeeding over that first six months of life. And one of the great things about following a cohort of nearly 7,000 mums through is that we can actually track what happens with that. So we did engage with the mothers and ask them about their ability to maintain breastfeeding over that initial six months and later. And what we saw is that Breastfeeding rates were reasonably high by a month, they were around about 80% still. But by the time we got out to six months, we found that while two thirds of the mothers were still breastfeeding their children um, to some degree, that only around about 6% were exclusively breastfeeding. Now in a New Zealand environment, you could consider that's okay, because introduction of solids will often occur before six months. You know, Plunkett and other groups, well child carers, will often recommend that solids are introduced around about five months or so. But we do know that that doesn't comply, for example, with some of the guidelines that are out there about breastfeeding. So we were very keen, as we are throughout the study, to understand whether mums were able to align their behaviour, if you like, to what was recommended through ministries or other guidelines. And so I guess what we saw in the tracking of breastfeeding over time was that, I guess if you were measuring it, mums were failing. And we don't like to see mums failing because mums don't want to fail. They generally want to do their best for their babies. So 
while they weren't exclusive breastfeeding though, they were actually continuing to breastfeed. So two thirds of the mums still breastfeeding at six months, again is high internationally. So when we compare ourselves, for example, to, to a lot of the places in Europe, Ireland and the UK, those figures are down below 50% by that point. So we're still doing better. But not everybody, of course, is able to maintain breastfeeding for lots of different reasons. Um, and we could ask why women had stopped breastfeeding. And for some, they're the things that we might expect. It was difficult for them. They had issues with milk supply or they had issues with pain and other infections or other problems that made it very difficult for them. But what we also saw is with the pressure to return to work for many mums, there were also challenges for them in terms of continuing to breastfeed their baby and go back into the workplace given our paid parental leave processes and the difficulties that women experience in terms of actually having workplaces that are flexible enough to allow them to continue that behaviour. So while we do well, I think we could probably do better. And we could do better not just in terms of how women themselves do, but in the support we give women to actually engage in breastfeeding. And the way that we see that is really fundamentally important if women are able to breastfeed, to encourage them and allow them and support them to be able to continue to breastfeed their children for as long as they would like to. And I guess that's something else that we saw that uh, when we asked in pregnancy about intentions to breastfeed, and the length of those uh, breastfeeding intentions. We often saw that mums actually intended and wanted to breastfeed their children for around about twice as long as they were actually able to. Because in some ways reality got in the way postnatally, that, that need to go back to work, that need to be engaging with other activities that made their lives complex, just really made it difficult for them to do the things that they wanted to do. One of the unique aspects of the study is that it follows children since before they were even born. What have you discovered about the pregnancy in the antenatal period? So I think it's been really important to actually recruit in pregnancy and that's been one of the things that sets the study apart. What that allowed us to do is to ask things like hopes and dreams for this child. It asked, we could ask things about intentions for immunisation, for breastfeeding, for return to work, for who is going to look after those children if mums return to work or dads return to work. So that was really interesting in that we could get those ideas about what parents wanted for their children. And then we could follow up postnatally to see whether those things had been enabled by the environments and the families and the support that these mums, dads and families received in that immediate postnatal period. So some of the things that I think that came out of that that are most uh, important when we're thinking about caring for those families and caring for the mums and the babies is that we saw rates first of all of depression in pregnancy that were far too high really. Um, and they were often uh, rates of depressive symptoms that had gone untreated at that point. So in late pregnancy for our mothers, for example, we saw around about one in nine of the mothers in their third trimester of pregnancy experiencing depressive symptoms that would suggest they may have a depressive illness. And not all of those mums had previously been diagnosed with depression, nor were they being treated. So that means that, you know, potentially those mothers were going into that immediate postnatal period already not in the best possible health state themselves. What we saw postnatally is that about a half of those women resolved in terms of their mental health, but another half developed 
depressive symptoms postnatally. So we had about one in eight of the mums in that first nine months of their children's lives displaying depressive symptoms. And when we think about that and the rates of treatment, there's a bit of a gap there. We're not necessarily identifying those mums, certainly in late pregnancy. We may be picking more of them up postnatally, but there's that really critical period of late pregnancy and very first six weeks, for example, where actually we need to think differently, potentially about screening for that in that pregnancy period or even prior to pregnancy so that mums are in the best possible state to look after themselves, but also to look after their children. Because we involve dads in the beginning as well, we could also measure those sort of depressive symptoms in dads. And that's a bit novel really, because nobody's really thought about that in terms of dads and antenatal depression particularly. We can, we can measure it in men generally, but around that perinatal period, it's been a bit novel. So we found much less depressive symptoms in the dads, around about 2 to 3% in the antenatal period. But interestingly, that increased. It doubled in the postnatal period. So while mums went down, dads went up. So again, I think dads can be missed out in that sort of perinatal period generally. And so what we could do by looking at this is to draw attention to the fact that dads can get the blues as well. And that actually postnatally, if dads are not as well as they might be. That has an impact again on the mum and on the baby and the family generally. So again, recognising the importance of the dads in that perinatal period is something we probably haven't thought through quite enough in terms of all of our care. And that's really a, a salient lesson for all of us, whether we're sort of public health primary care or lead maternity carers or whatever, dads are often missing from the equation. Another thing about dads that was critically important is the intention to immunise. So we asked mums and dads separately about had they thought about plans for immunisation postnatally and what did they want to do for their children. And 85-86% of the mothers had made up their minds definitely that they wanted to immunise their children postnatally. They were going to completely and, and have timely immunisations right across the board, no differentiation according to ethnicity, no differentiation according to socioeconomic status. So they were committed to that. Um, dads slightly less so, but still most of them were committed to that, around about 70-75% of the dads had made their mind up. But where dads hadn't made their mind up, we saw postnatally that that impacted on mum's ability to actually go through with those intentions. So dads mattered in that decision and having the support of a partner in terms of those intentions was important. Also, I guess sadly, we saw postnatally that while there wasn't really any gradient in terms of intention to fully immunise their children postnatally, for our Māori and Pacific mo mothers in particular and children, the rates of timely immunisation fell off dramatically in the first nine months. So we started to see gaps in terms of timeliness as well as completeness of immunisations in that first nine months. So they were much more likely to have lags in terms of having the first immunisations and by nine months to have less likely to have completed the immunisation. So you know, for the whole group who said they wanted to immunise their children, only four out of five of the mums in the Māori, uh, Māori mums, but also children who were identified with Māori had achieved that, versus almost all of those in the New Zealand European group had achieved their intention. Similarly, if we looked at those in the most deprived areas, we saw a similar rate of fall off. 
So it suggests that this is not an information issue. Mums and dads know the importance of immunisation. Um, while there might be a difference in terms of dads agreeing what they want to do and that impact on the mums, it's actually about how postnatally do we ensure that the services allow them to go through with those plans for what they want for their children. Um, because that's really important in terms of the health and well-being of those children. We know that delayed immunisation and uh, reduced complete or completeness of immunisations can have real impacts on the, on the well-being of children in terms of their respiratory illness and various other hospitalisations as well. Increasing attention has been given to the crucial first thousand days of the child's life from conception until the age of two. What has this study revealed about this period, not only from the point of view of the child, but also the health and well-being of the parents? So what we've been able to do is to track what's happening in that first thousand days for these children and that's really important because this started in pregnancy so we haven't quite got back to conception but we've got the first thousand days up to two years and we've been able to measure what happens at the level of the family and the level of the neighbourhood and uh, the physical environment of those children over that critical time period and how cumulative exposure to some of those environments impacts on the child's well-being in the preschool years but also potentially as they go on to later life. And what we've seen is that in the pregnancy period itself, if mum is already struggling, if the family is struggling in terms of poverty, in terms of poor housing, in terms of a lack of employment, in terms of a lack of support, if mum and or dad have either physical or mental health issues that are impacting on their own health, that those clusters of things that operate from pregnancy throughout those first two years have really significant impacts on the child's well-being by the age of two and similarly by four and a half, so before they start school. So what we see is that children who are exposed to the most vulnerable environments, those sort of poverty environments, deprived environments, parents who are not so supported, who are often younger, who unfortunately are more likely to be our Māori and Pacific mums and dads, that those children are likely to have poorer behaviours, they are much more likely to have had ear infections, to have been admitted to hospital several times by the time they're two, to have had more accidents and injuries, to really be at a disadvantage very early in life. So those sort of pieces of work that have allowed us to look at the impact of these environments over time have brought us back to say, well, how can we do something to support those families differently? Because actually what it's telling us is we can't wait until those problems happen. We have an opportunity, particularly as health carers, to actually engage with those families differently and offer support really from before that child is born and to wrap support around those families. So I think the, the primary health carers as well as the lead maternity carers have a really important part to play in that. The families have told us how much they trust the information from those carers. We know how many times they go to their GP and that's often in those first few years. So there's an opportunity to really sort of engage with that family beyond the sort of immediate health of that child, even beyond things like immunisation and the things we've talked about, breastfeeding. But there's really a chance to be a key advocate here for engaging these families with the sort of services that might help them. There's a, a chance, I think, to acknowledge the importance of the home environment. 
that importance of having a warm and dry home in that first thousand days and how many of our families are actually struggling with that. You know, and, and maybe to ask those sort of questions that aren't traditional in terms of the interaction you might have with a mum and a child and can be difficult in a 15-minute sort of uh, period of time, but actually nevertheless are critically important in terms of the well-being of that family and of that child. So just sort of being aware of those things and being aware particularly for these families of the sort of challenges they face with, with the home environment in terms of tenure. You know, the fact that many of these families are in rental accommodation, that that's a very tenuous place and state for these children and families to be in. And many, many children are experiencing multiple home moves in their preschool period. So only one in three of the children in the cohort have not moved at least once in their first five years of life. So often we, you know, we plan our services geographically. We assume that when we are tracking people through a health system or other systems that people have stayed in the same place. These young families are not staying in the same place, they're moving. So part of the way that we're engaging with them needs to acknowledge that. So that sort of virtual engagement in terms of if they don't appear for an appointment, maybe it's because they didn't get the appointment, maybe they've shifted. But it's also about understanding that, you know, as, as I think we all do now, that their health and well-being is shaped by more than just that immediate um, health interaction, that it's shaped by their broader environment and that as a health carer, you know, your role in that child and family's life is really, really important. It's central to making sure that they are getting the best start in life that they possibly can. So one of the other things that we can do with Growing Up in New Zealand is we can link it to some of the health data that is routinely collected with consent from the parents to do that. So we're able to link it to things like hospital admissions. Um, we can also link it to primary care records with consent, of course. But we can link it to dispensing information, so pharma data. And so we've been very interested to understand things like antibiotic dispensing um, for this cohort in their first thousand days and also through to their fifth birthday. And perhaps not surprisingly, we've seen a huge rate of antibiotic dispensing in these children. So 97% of the cohort before they're five have had at least one course of antibiotics. And when we look at the median number of antibiotic courses that we see for all the children, it's eight. And that is much higher than most OECD countries. And again, when we look at our Māori and Pacific children, that rate is even higher, it's greater than 10 courses in that first five days. And when we link that up to the sort of information we know about what that was for in general, from what we can link up from those multiple sources of information, many of them may have been respiratory illnesses that would have been self-limiting anyway. Um, and most of them are for amoxicillin, as, as we can probably guess. So that raises questions really, I guess, for people who are prescribing those antibiotics to potentially step back and think, is that the rate of dis dispensing of antibiotics that we would expect in our under fives? Given that we're starting to see some evidence that antibiotics for children in their first thousand days, as well as potentially for mums in pregnancy, may be associated with things like overweight and obesity later in childhood, um, and potentially behavioural issues, although the jury is still out about whether that's causal or whether that's actually confounded by some of the reasons why they might be taking the antibiotics in the first place, and that's something we're looking at. 
but I think probably 97% coverage in eight courses of antibiotics in children who are largely well in this population overall is probably too high. And so it makes us step back and probably individually think more carefully about that sort of rate of dispensing. I don't think in this case, for example, for our Māori and Pacific, having more dispensing is necessarily a bad sign because we do know that our Māori and Pacific children experience higher rates of respiratory disease, in particular in hospital admission. But overall the rate is too high, I think, when we compare ourselves to other countries and it probably makes us step back and say, should we be dispensing these antibiotics in these numbers to families? And as well as questioning ourselves about that, I think it's also a question of expectations of parents, because often the reason for dispensing those we're told by the parents is because they expect that. And so it's that sort of double-sided expectation that we maybe need to sort of think about how we deal with in primary care. Mm, some really interesting and quite crucial points there. So primary care GPs and nurses frequently hold a special relationship of familiarity and trust with their patients. Has growing up in New Zealand identified anything more primary care should be doing to promote healthy child development and well-being? So I think some of the things that we found from growing up in New Zealand are that throughout pregnancy as well as in the postnatal period, mothers and families generally are being bombarded with information. Things like what to eat and when to eat it and what to avoid in particular in pregnancy. So they are struggling with the, with the sort of richness, if you like, of the internet environment and the messaging that they're getting around what they should be doing to be healthy for themselves as well as for their babies. And I think given the relationship of trust that they can often have with their primary carers, it may be really important to engage in those opportunities of contact with those mums either during pregnancy or postnatally to help them to understand how to make sense of those pieces of information. So when we think about nutrition and pregnancy, mums have told us that they are just confused with a number of messages about what to do and, and what foods to avoid, for example. And when we look at their compliance with what, say, the Ministry of Health would suggest they do across the broad food groups, we find that only 3% of the mums, for example, actually comply with all of the nutritional guidelines in pregnancy. So only 3% out of the whole 7,000. Now there's different sort of categories in that, whether it's a protein or whether it's a dairy or whether it's the vegetables and fruit or, or other activities we see lesser or, or greater, I guess, uh, compliance. But overall, over the five key food groups, 3%. So mums are struggling with that information and yet they want to comply. They want to do what's right for themselves as well as for their children. So I think there's potentially a place within sort of primary care to think about how uh, people can help navigate that for these mums and for their families to help them understand how to make sense of that information, some of which is more valuable than others and more real than others actually. Um, when we think about other sort of information that isn't quite nutritional but also important and think about folic acid for example, one of the things that was surprising is that some 16% of all the mothers didn't take any folic acid at all, either perinatally or during their pregnancy. And actually when we look at it in detail across the pregnancy period, 
we see that actually nine out of 10 of the mothers didn't actually comply with the way that folic acid is designed to be used. So four weeks prior to pregnancy and throughout that first trimester. We found that uh, two thirds of the mothers started too late. So partly because of unplanned pregnancy, but we also found that those mums that did comply early often went on too long. So they were actually taking too much folic acid. So I think there's, there's this recognition of a gap that is still existing between what we often know from good evidence is potentially good for mums and babies and how that is being enacted in reality. And some of that is just about information and making sense of it. Others is about how to make healthy choices when you've got constrained lifestyles. So I guess really there is an opportunity here for primary carers, for primary health care, to recognise that pivotal connection that they have with families, that every sort of uh, time they engage with mums, with other carers and those babies, there's an opportunity to be thinking uh, beyond the sort of immediate health of that child to some of these other wider issues and just really engaging in more conversations, which of course takes more time and that's problematic, but maybe there are other ways to think creatively about how that could be offered in a, in a general practice situation, for example, that may be about the, the other people in the practice and the other carers that could be engaged in advocacy to maybe connect some of these families to other services that are not necessarily uh, just health services, but necessarily will be impacting on the health and well-being of these children. So in pregnancy, we had the opportunity to actually, as well as asking a whole raft of questions of the parents, to actually ask them at the end of the interview to tell us what their hopes and dreams were for their as yet unborn child. And I think what was really lovely to see was that virtually every parent wanted the best for their child. They wanted to be happy. They wanted them to be healthy. They wanted to have a better life than they had had. Um, many of the parents had actually come to New Zealand specifically to raise a family. So of these 7,000 children, one in three of them has a parent who wasn't born in New Zealand themselves. So we are a nation now of migrants and we have a group of children growing up here in their first generation, if you like, for the very first time for many of these families. So we also asked about things like educational aspirations. What do they want for their children? And again, virtually without fail, all parents in pregnancy wanted their children to have a really good education, to go on to be whatever they wanted to be, to be able to fulfill their hopes and dreams. So that was what they told us before their children were born. We've then been able to go back postnatally and to track how that has played out for those families. And what we do see is good engagement in early childhood education, um, which increases over that preschool period. So by the time the children are four and a half, we're seeing 97% of the children engaging in some form of early childhood education. Although the type of education and the sort of different um, access to that education has changed over that period. So often for our more deprived families, they're using family members early and then gradually shifting into more formal ECE environments, whereas some of our um, families who are more advantaged are able to access some of those services earlier. Um, what we can see though, I think that was, that was somewhat sobering, is that when we asked the parents again at four and a half about their hopes and dreams or their aspirations for their children's educational attainment. We saw those had been blunted for the families who had experienced the most 
deprived situation through that first five years, the ones who had moved home most often, the ones who were living in poverty, the ones who had experienced most instability in terms of relationships for the, the parents or changes in household structure, or those who had experienced the most poor well-being of the family or the child. So I think that was sort of sad to think that by the time the children were starting school, we were already seeing these gradients open up. We were seeing that there was less expectation for some of the children who were experiencing more hardship than those who hadn't. And I guess one of the things that we were keen to do out of that was to say, how do we make these hopes actually become a reality for all the children? How do we actually make sure that children are starting that school environment um, with their hopes and dreams alive, you know, not blunted by, by the reality of their environments? Because I think that's really what we want for our New Zealand children, for all of them, and certainly what the parents told us that they wanted. Yeah, I think overall in this cohort there was there's a lot of expectation about going on in education. And that's something that we see for the parents as well. This generation of parents are more likely to have been through tertiary education than generations before, but certainly their aspirations for their children were even greater than their own. And I guess that talks about the value of that in terms of what people see that leading to for their children in terms of opportunities. And that was certainly the case in the early years, the very early years, that, that particularly for Pacific, you know, that was seen as a key driver for them having a better life. I think though what we are seeing still by the time the children start school is that difference opening up where that reality is setting in. And that's, that's something that I think we don't want to see blunted when the children are five years old. We still want them to start that formal schooling, if you like, with with hopes and dreams that they can be whoever they want to be, you know, that they can fulfil their dreams. Um, but nevertheless, I think what we do see, you know, quite dramatically is the impact of poverty, really, however you define that complex environment, and the impact that has on choice and the ability for families to actually provide the sorts of environments they really want to provide for their children. And that's something that I think in New Zealand we want to really work hard to close that gap. You know, those inequalities that we see whenever we measure our routine statistics, whether they're health statistics or education statistics or statistics to do with incarceration or behaviour or any other statistics, we know that those are unacceptable. The fact that our Māori and Pacific and poorest children are constantly doing so much worse than their peers in other countries, let alone their peers in New Zealand, is just simply unacceptable. And so part of what we do with growing up is try and work out what is going on with that gap, what is shaping it. Because we can keep measuring it and we can keep saying this is bad. But actually by following these families to work out what is actually enabling them to actually close the gap or what is helping them to follow through those hopes and dreams, and importantly what's stopping them as well, that's where we see this evidence having the most impact to actually put in place things that are working. And I think that's one of the great advantages of following families over time, is while we focus on the mad and the sad and the bad and what's going wrong, and that's sort of what our routine statistics keep telling us too, we also know, for example, that for our children who are potentially Māori or Pacific or experiencing great hardship, that while they have greater likelihood of having poor outcomes, 
There's also a large group of them who do really well despite that situation. And so one of the things we really want to do and have started to do with this data now that we've accumulated it over that preschool period is to say what's actually working for those families, what's creating resilience in the face of that adversity. And that's actually starting to have impact, for example, in South Auckland, where we've looked at the group of children who are very disadvantaged when you compare them to their peers. And yet not all of them go on to have poor outcomes. Many of them thrive and achieve and do much better than we'd expect them to do. And so that's led us to go back to the information from the families themselves and say, what is it that is different for those families? And it seems to be about the level of support. It does seem to be about their ability to engage with services, including health services, and their comfort and level of feeling that those services are applicable and appropriate for them. And it's also just feeling that there are supports in the community that value them and their children, and that they can engage with those, that they're not on their own. And those are things that we're now translating into activities in South Auckland to support those families there who are struggling with, you know, with poverty often, but who actually still are in a, the best position to provide good and safe and secure environments for their children. And we can help enable that as a community and we can help enable that as professionals. What's the future of this study, Susan? Yes, yeah, so this study is longitudinal, which is one of the exciting things about it because we get to hear the voices of the children as well as their parents. So starting in pregnancy and through the first five years, which is where we've engaged with these families so far, we've largely heard from the mums and the dads and other members of their family about their own well-being, about their own environments, about how they feel about their children and about reports about how their children are doing. Where we're currently at with the study is in the field when the children are eight years old, so it's the transition into school. And I think one of the really exciting things about that is we're hearing the children's voices for the first time. So where we have had reports about how children are doing in terms of their behaviour, for example, or their sense of well-being, or their sense of identity, we can now ask the children themselves how they feel about who they are and where they might go and how they feel about their peers and how they feel in themselves um, and how are their identities emerging, whether that's their ethnic identity or their gender identity or, or how they feel their peers perceive them. You know, so those sorts of issues are really important. So we're currently engaging with them at eight. Um, again, it's a multidisciplinary study, so we're interested in their well-being, but we're also interested in, in their cognition. We're interested in their behaviours. We're interested in how they're engaging with society. Uh, one of the key things we're interested in is how they engage in the digital environment because these children are digital natives. You know, we've seen since they were nine months old that they're using screens in a way that no generation ever has before. You know, and the messages that say screens are bad is not really very useful for a generation where screens are ubiquitous. So we're able to understand the impact and, and the time spent on screens and what happens around that in the family and school and so on. So that's really exciting. That's going to add valuable evidence to the picture that we've got of their development from pre-birth through their preschool period to understand how that early environment has shaped where they're at at eight. But it's also obviously a platform to then see how they go beyond that. So we're currently obviously looking forward. The idea is to follow these children until they're at least 21. That's what we told the parents when we recruited them. Um, we were quite explicit that this is a study that's looking to go long term, that we're looking to track the journeys of all of these individuals. So we're thinking about adolescence. 
We know again in New Zealand some of our statistics around adolescents are particularly bad. Things like rates of bullying, certainly mental health issues, rates of suicide. You know, we have some appalling statistics in New Zealand generally, but also for groups within our population. So we're really trying to get the sort of precursors of that to understand what is shaping those later outcomes, those later behaviours. So again, we can look to uh, prevent some of those things happening by understanding the early environment that has shaped those. So that's very much where our focus is now, continuing to engage with these children themselves and, and they will have their own voice in the study now going forward. Um, so that's exciting. Um, it's also challenging because the way that we engage with these children will be different. Uh, again, because they're digital natives, so engaging them with traditional sort of face-to-face -face interviews is not necessarily appropriate. So we need to hear from them as well about how they want to continue to engage and have their voices heard. But I guess what we know so far is that every single one of those nearly 7,000 children has a unique journey and a unique story. And it's a collection of all those stories that is really valuable for informing policy and for improving outcomes for all of our children. And so we really do want to continue to connect with every one of them to find out what that early life has meant. Because that's the best way that we're going to understand how to actually make things better for all of our children. And to conclude, Susan, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners today? I think a key thing is that the parents have told us how important in their lives their health professionals are, that these are trusted people that they engage with, that when they engage with them, they, you know, they value the information that is provided, they value the advice that is given. So I think that's critically important to acknowledge, not just for the health things that we might automatically think they're important for, but actually for support for the family more generally. Because I think what we see tracking these children and the families over time is yes, that health is critically important and particularly health in the early years is important for how these children are going to develop over time. But actually it's their connection to the wider environment, it's their home environment, it's the physical environment as well as the relationships that these families have that is really helping to shape health but also other aspects of their children's development. So potentially the, the capacity to be an advocate and a navigator for these families through that early thousand days, that first thousand day journey which is so important for shaping development is something that I don't think we can underestimate. And the times that those families are engaging with their primary health carers is, is quite often during that early period and so there are a lot of opportunities to actually just really to be there to support those families on that journey. As I'm sure most of these people want to do, but just understanding how important their, their role is. I think also probably it's, it's just from the study itself is just recognising somehow how many of these mothers and the families are struggling with the amount of information that is out there for them in terms of how to do the best thing for their own health as well as the health of their child. So recognising that while we may be very clear about, you know, about folic acid, for example, about nutrition, about immunisation, about the things that we are very familiar with, that sometimes how to actually access or engage with those things can be quite 
a challenge for, for many women, not just for those who are potentially at the vulnerable end of the spectrum. So the role in terms of helping to navigate with that information is important. I think also the, the fact that helping to get immunisation to be timely and complete is an issue. We know from the mums and dads they want to do that for the children and yet we're seeing that they're having trouble doing that and there are uh, gradients opening up in terms of people's ability to fulfil that. So thinking through from a primary health point of view how that can be enabled could be really important in engaging about how to actually provide those services in even more diverse ways than they currently are. Recognising that you know relationship with primary health care is, is, is based on engagement and trust. And when you've got a group of mobile families, that becomes much more difficult, and these are a group of mobile families. So thinking, I guess, what that means for practices in terms of how you continue to engage with your population if they're much more mobile than they've been before. Um, which is challenging for all of us in terms of how do we provide services that aren't geographically based but might need to be more virtual. So thinking that through, I guess, is, is part of the challenge as well. But I think overall it's just recognising that you know support for these mums is what's required and that, that the primary health carer and the general practice has a key role in that, really, and just uh, not underestimating how important that role is in terms of in terms of what advice and support is given um, and in how we can value how mums and dads are really trying to do the right thing. Thank you, Susan. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD appointments for listening to this podcast, please fill in a reflection of learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.